John, let's go on and get ourselves another contestant. All right, Bob, how about Nancy Heimstra? Come on down, you're the next contestant on the Friday Friday. 600. $600 is her bid. Lois? $480. $480 brings me to Mitchell. $490. $490, and we're back to Tilly. $450. $450. And the actual retail price is... For this year, for spodumene, as well as carbonate and hydroxide, and also kind of medium to long-term... When we look at the sort of long-run incentive price in the lithium market, I think we still see, you know, spodumene is going to be close to that sort of $600 mark um, from where we are today is, is in and around $450 um, now. So you, you are going to have to see some elevation in prices there to, to support some of these new projects. Um, similarly, on the, you know, in the chemical front, and I can't give you the exact number off the top of my head, but we're around the 12 to low teens level in terms of a long-run incentive price to support those. So maybe not as high as 14 but uh, I think we're still, like I say, in the low proteins um, to, to, uh, as a long-run incentive for the chemicals. So that's where we are. And, you know, compared to where we are today, we're at about you know, roughly on average around $10 for, for hydroxide, depending on which part of the world. It obviously dragged down a lot by the, the low prices in China, but those have become a bit more robust in the past few weeks. Um, on the chemical side, like I say, again, we're, we're seeing more stable pricing compared to where Q4 was with some incredibly low offers in the Chinese market. Um, and you're still seeing prices in, you know, around the eight level. So, yeah, there does have to be some elevation from where we are today, we believe, to, to support further expansions. Welcome to Lithium Iron Rocks, episode 28. It is Saturday, March 7th. I'm uh, here after a couple of days at PDAC earlier this week, and that was Andy Miller, who joined us 12 months ago for our first The Price is Right episode. Uh, we figured we'd uh, revisit that, which also coincided with SQM's results, which we're going to talk about here. We uh, have Rodney uh, going to comment as well. He wrote a, a note for uh, our proprietary um, Patreon subscribers, which uh, we would encourage all of you uh, to sign up for if you want to get this uh, proprietary insight, of which he gives uh, some snippet here, as well as some of our GLG customers. Rodney has been heavily focused on Europe and uh, is chairing a uh, flagship, a new benchmark uh, event in Berlin this June. But before that, uh, Benchmark is uh, going to be in Washington again for their major kind of U.S.-focused uh, critical minerals uh, for the battery supply chain, which uh, Andy uh, gave a snippet of um, at the start of his presentation at the Miller-Thompson event. Uh, but before we go to Rodney and to Andy, we're going to have a little bit of a snippet here from Nobel Prize winner Stanley Whittingham, who was uh, the keynote at uh, this Miller-Thompson event. Uh, you saw a uh, lithium-ion battery going into an electric vehicle in 1977, and uh, until the late 2000s, um, there were no lithium-powered cars driving around. So 40 years it took, and I just wanted to maybe hear your perspective on how technologies move, and this one being a really good example of this slow, steady growth, and then all of a sudden you have that accelerated movement into it, and maybe what the catalyst was in your mind for that movement. There were several catalysts, and can I say anti-catalysts? <laughs> so remember when Exxon got involved in lithium-ion batteries, um, gasoline was in the U.S. 25 cents a gallon. They perceived oil production was going to peak about the year 2000, so they want to become an energy company. Um, in the mid-'80s, 
well, I should say in the 70s, the gas prices went up because of the Arab embargo. They then came down again, and the batteries weren't really ready then. It was really the build-up in Japan for electronic devices, small ones. You test them as get larger and larger, and then it really became viable uh, you know, 20, 30 years later. Remember, all vehicles in 1900 were electric. So it went to electric internal combustion engines, tossed them out. They're now coming back again. And I think part of the change you're going to see is political decisions, that we are going to go to a cleaner environment. You're not going to drive um, diesel engines in downtown Toronto anymore. You're going to have clean engines. And that's clearly happening in London. They're trying to make it happen in New York, and it's happening in San Francisco. So a lot of this is going to be politics-driven. But clearly, you know, I was in California last week, and that, I don't want to say every third car was a Tesla, but it seemed like that. <laughs> so clearly, they're, you know, they're taking off, and um, the Tesla 3 is sold more cars than any other car except for three, I think. So it's beating most of the combat cars sold by the major companies, including Toyota. So the environment is right, electric vehicles are going to take over, and it's clear that utilities want to get rid of all their peaker stations because it's huge capital investment, and if they can use batteries to do that, they're going to do it. Solar these days is cheaper than putting in a new coal power plant. In most forecasts for lithium, specifically kind of downplay that lithium is going to be the winner uh, in grid storage, you seem to have a different opinion. Could you just talk about that and compare it to other technologies? And also, does the U.S. have a bit of a lead in grid storage relative to China and other countries? Right now, most of the companies are using exactly the same technologies for the vehicles. The composition of the NMC may be slightly different. Certainly some of the grid storage efforts in the U.S. have been using lithium-ion phosphate. I wouldn't necessarily say U.S. is ahead. They have a fairly large number of grid storage efforts. Um, Los Angeles apparently has given the go-ahead to build a one gigawatt hour lithium battery grid storage facility. Now, clearly places like Australia, where electricity can cost over a dollar a kilowatt hour, they're putting grid storage in, and that's what Tesla did in South Australia. Um, a lot of the grid storage batteries are built in South Korea by LG, and they've been having a few issues of late. But um, there's a very large push in this country to get grid storage online. Germany has to do the same thing because they've got more renewables than the grid can handle. So I think it's going to happen across the board, and there's not going to be any one country on top of it. NC, NCMA versus a, the current NCM cathode technology, what that means in terms of both performance and, uh, and cost? So th this is what the Battery 500 consortium in the United States is looking at. This is left by Pacific National Lab. Um, NMCA just means that we think they'll all have some aluminum in them, that's the A, or magnesium or something like that to stabilize them. We've shifted from 622 to 811, and my colleagues in Texas are now over 90% nickel. <coughs> the issue is as soon as you get much above 60%, they're very air sensitive, so the materials have to be handled in a dry room or some similar environment, and so they can be more difficult to ship. 
but the tendency is to go to 811, and if we can do it, even higher. 811 is very similar to NCA, except 811 has a bit of manganese in it. Um, my colleagues at BASF are going the opposite way. They want to go to very high manganese to cut down the costs. It's not clear whether that's going to work, but they're investing millions of dollars into doing that. So all the large efforts here and in Europe are all looking at what is the best composition for the NMCA, and that to some extent depends on the electrolyte. If we can come up with a new electrolyte that's stable to these higher nickel materials, then it will go higher and higher in nickel. I gave a, a long interview with INN Priscilla Barrera uh, at the PDAC, which uh, I would encourage you all to listen to, which which talks a lot about my uh, stock ideas and um, repositioning of you know, portfolio uh, in the light of uh, coronavirus and just other um, things we're seeing in the market. But I'll quickly comment on some takeaways and learnings uh, we heard. I haven't seen this uh, publicly uh, disclosed in English, but uh, Tangxi put out a press release in Chinese about two weeks ago talking about their stage one Quinana, you know, having yet another cost overrun. I think of uh, maybe a hundred million dollars, and that's being slowed down. Uh, so they are having their uh, uh, own operational problems, uh, you know, far worse, it, it seems, than anything, you know, Namaska undertook. Unfortunately, Namaska has gone bankrupt. Uh, best wishes to Guy Barasa, um, who stepped down, and they are now in a uh, kind of a bankruptcy process. I know a number of companies and investors are in receipt of um, you know the pitch book and teasers. Uh, we interviewed John Hikeway, who is involved a bit uh, in Namaska and the Orion transaction, and that will be a subsequent podcast. Uh, I encourage you to tune into after this one. All the majors, uh, SQM, Albemarle, and Livent, as well as Oracobre, reported their results. Um, I, my, my sense from Albemarle and Livent, was a, I was just surprised, uh, given this is an oligopolistic industry, how little pricing power both of them had with you know big reductions. Uh, I just don't understand why they can't tell you know the, their purchasers who clearly are going to need, uh, you know, their, their ramp up of activity that I'm sorry, we're just, we're not going to lower the price as much as, as, as we, we did, but you know, this is a dynamic market. And, uh, in a few years time, I believe that, uh, the pricing power will be with, uh, more uh, of the suppliers if, and when, you know, they're able to, uh, you know, produce the quality which I don't believe SQM does at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, Livent's earnings are being hurt by having to purchase, you know, third-party carbonate, so their margins have been squeezed. My leading indicator, uh, Ganfeng, I, I sold uh, that stock because it is now the most highly valued uh, company in the lithium space, but, uh, you know, their margins have shrunk to 9%. I mean, they are they really suffer from, you know, purchasing higher cost spodumene from a well-negotiated offtake agreement, you know, by mineral resources and neo-metals side. We just had SQM report again, uh, yet again, no increase in supply over the previous year. So the air supply narrative has been debunked. What also came from SQM's quarterly call was that uh, lithium 
demand was 14% up last year, and that compared to their forecast of 20% demand increase. So everyone talks about oversupply. I talk about under-demand, in particular from China, in particular because of the collapse subsidies in the second half of the year, which may or may not have been influenced by the trade war, but the trade war certainly influenced uh, corporate liquidity within China and the ability of converters to uh, you know, fully ramp up. These are second-tier converters, uh, ramp up their capacity, and also some battery companies. I make some final comments uh, at the end of this podcast after uh, Andy and uh, Rodney's segment, but uh, the last thing for me for now is uh, some comment on a, a company I have great respect for, and that is Altura. Congratulations to James Brown and Altura. I know a lot of people uh, continue to pay disrespect to that company and, and blame uh, the company for uh, you know self-inflicted wounds and the like, and and not having you know great offtake, but uh, you know hindsight is twenty twenty, uh, and the reality is their offtake partner wrote a forty million dollar check, JNR Optimum Nano, in in twenty seventeen. Uh, you know who who thought they'd go bankrupt? Who thought uh, you know the slowdown w- would be as material? You know, in China, you know, you have even Ganfeng um, is an offtake partner of Pilbara, but but decided not to participate in Pilbara's rights offer. You know, instead, CATL came in. So uh, there's a lot of dynamism and and, and moving around. You know, in in the market, but uh, I was significantly involved with Altura and that financing on both the debt and equity side. They had a floor of 550, you know, and, and a ceiling of 950 for their spodumene. They've executed nearly flawlessly, you know, except for a $20 million, you know, operational overrun. But they have just been kicked in the teeth by this under demand, uh, less so oversupply. You know, they have very high quality. And, um, you know, a lot of people have been rooting for them to, to, to follow, you know, Bald Hill uh, over, um, you know, but hats off to... Alan Buckler, you know, very wealthy um, chairman of the company who has continued to follow his money into it. Uh, they did have to revise their their debt agreements and uh, give some sweeteners in terms of um, options and stock, you know, and, and there is now this kind of $50 million equity line out there that, uh, that they can tap into and, you know, hopefully they don't need too much because it's a bit of an overhang, but you know, it, it was a painful financing. Um, congratulations to Clarkson, who is also uh, the co-lead with National Bank Financial on the Namaska process. Uh, but they, they, they did package and structure and source um, alternative capital, you know, that has kept Altura, you know, in business. Uh, I uh, Hopefully, you know, there'll be a turn sooner rather than later so that the spodumene prices will uplift and they can make some Cash flow, you know, and pay their pay their interest, um, but but uh, coronavirus, you know, yet another kick in the teeth that nobody could forecast. So um, again, to, to to those who continue to pay disrespect or say that like only Gan, you know, you, you, all of the Western Australians were were kind of idiots for um, you know trying to get into production without solid solid offtake agreements. The, the reality is there there are very few converters. In China, of high quality, Ganfeng is one. The market in 2016, 2017, which was demand, was here as far as the eye can see. And you have a whole bunch of 
small and mid-size, you know, second tier, but nevertheless uh, ambitious entrepreneurial uh, converters and battery companies and, you know, Who's to say, um, you know, when they're writing a check and it goes in your bank for $40 million, you know, that they're not going to be in business, uh, you know, six months later, as was the case with Altura. You know, meantime, Altura, you know, and their sales force, hats off to Alex Cheeseman, you know, for sourcing uh, new customers. I think they'll be well positioned if they, uh, you know, seem to be, you know, surviving through this crisis, um, you know, what will happen to the stock, you know, I, I don't know near term until we see an uptick in spodumene prices, I, I would be, you know, very cautious. But uh, just from a, a pure operations perspective, uh, I'm a fan uh, of the team at Altura as I am at Pilbara, and uh, I, I wish them the greatest success. And, and I believe that their product uh, w- will be needed in this market for you know, many, many years to come. Uh, but uh, I still remain a, a bigger fan of uh, vertically integrated strategies um, as opposed to just spodumene only stories. I have uh, some questions from Rodney here. He unfortunately couldn't be at PDAC. What are your thoughts on the impact of uh, the coronavirus on lithium supply in China? Uh, so the supply and also on, on the demand impact. There was some chemical inventory from last year, but EV sales are weak for January and February in China. They've been pretty good in Europe. So what's your sense? I think for the time being, you know, and you really do in the short term sort of have to look at where the major operations, a lot of the smaller converters in China at the tail end of last year because of the market conditions weren't producing, you know, some at all um, anyway at that point in the market. So you really have to focus on where the major operators are. The, what we're hearing at the moment is the biggest disruption is really around logistics. I think there's bit, they're, they're not quite operating at capacity, um, the major producers, the tier one producers in the market, but they're moving towards that, and we haven't heard of any disruption to deliveries at this stage. So I think in the short term, focus on those 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 smaller group of Chinese producers that are producing battery-grade material. At the moment, it doesn't seem there's too much disruption to their, their production, but it's one we're, we're tracking closely. And if there's some disruption to logistics, particularly where China's a very dominant, particularly on the lithium hydroxide front, for instance, you know, that can always have a, a knock-on impact in the market. Um, I think longer term and the longer term concern around coronavirus potentially becomes, you know, as you're working through that backlog that we have of this spodumene concentrate in the market, how quickly is that going to be absorbed? And if some of those smaller operators aren't coming back into the market or aren't coming back in and producing at the scale uh, um, expected in the first half of this year, does this push back the backlog in, in the supply chain? And uh, and are we sort of... Uh, held under under current market conditions for a little bit longer um i think that's the bigger question but you know at the moment is is very much you know we're waiting to see we haven't heard of too much disruption on the production side of things but um all all the deliveries at this stage but it's one we're monitoring very closely tangshi announced in chinese about two weeks ago that uh, quinana stage one had a cost overrun could you talk about what you know of Tangxi and what this means for Northvolt and the custo- other customers that they had from that? Because that's a lot of hydroxide supply that's going to be delayed. Your conclusion of your presentations were expect more 